it's definitely good to see you all this morning on this cool fall morning before, uh, before Thanksgiving this coming week. Um, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Exodus chapter 4, Exodus chapter 4 this morning, and we're going to finish chapter 4 and begin chapter 5. Now, as we know, we've moved away from the burning bush narrative, and last week as we saw Moses is preparing to leave with his, with his family, and as he's preparing to leave, we saw three important things that taught us about the Lord, our Heavenly Father. The Lord guides Moses with assurance as he guides us with his assurance. So Moses leaving the land of Midian, leaving his father-in-law, who has been this refuge to him for the last 40 years. It seems that Moses comes under the realization that he could possibly still be a wanted man, being hunted down, and the Lord assures him that, kind of an awkward way of being assured, that those dudes were dead and he should be okay. Um, The Lord also assures Moses um, of his power by reminding him again of the authority of the staff that he takes with them. The second thing that we see the Lord doing is we see the Lord assuring and encouraging Moses in his sovereign love. So somewhere along the way, Um, The Lord comes to Moses and he tells Moses what to say to Pharaoh. And as he does so, he tells him that he has hardened Pharaoh's heart. So we see the sovereign hand of God accomplishing his will through Pharaoh for his glory and by his power. But he also shows in this uh, word that he's supposed to tell Pharaoh... He says, let my firstborn son go. There's this familial language that the Lord uses to address this people Israel, that they're not just some oppressed people in Egypt. They are God's people, God's sons. And God loves his sons. And he's going to accomplish his will in his glory by exhibiting his sovereign love in the deliverance of his people. It is covenantal, it's relational, it's loving because it's according to his mercy and according to his grace, not according to the grandeur or greatness of Israel, but by God's grace and mercy. And lastly, we see how Moses uh, personally experiences this lesson of God's holiness and mercy. So in verses 24 through 26, there's this strange passage that kind of like falls its way right there in the, in the text. And what it shows us is that God is holy and he will not be trifled with even if your name is Moses. And even if you are a part of Moses' family, but the Lord's covenant and the sign of his covenant will be, um, will be followed. But in that whole crazy little situation there, still shows mercy and saving Moses' life. Now, we will be moving into chapter 5 this morning. Of course, we're going to finish chapter 4. But as we move into chapter 
five, we are now getting into the, into, um, into the full Exodus narrative now, right? We've kind of been, for the last 100 weeks or so, we've already been filling, like making the foundation, like where's all this coming from? And there's been this expectation and anticipation of, of what's to come. Well, here it, here it happens. The showdown between Pharaoh and the Lord Yahweh begins. And it begins to, to ramp up here in chapter 5. In a sense, you can, you can almost see the lines being drawn in the sand, the shots being set across the bow, right? The intentions of both parties are very well made clear and known. But before we get there, we're going to finish chapter 4, and then we'll move into chapter 5. So chapter 4, let's start reading together in verse 27. The Lord said to Aaron, Go into the wilderness and meet Moses. So he went, and he met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron of all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak, and all the signs that he commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went together and gathered, excuse me, gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in sight of the people. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited them, the, visited the people of Israel, and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. Chapter 5. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to the Lord, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may go hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is Yahweh, that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know Yahweh. I do not know the Lord. And moreover, I will not let Israel go. And they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And the Pharaoh said, Behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens. At the same time, the Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, You shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks. As in the past, let them go gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past, you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore, they cry, let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men, that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. And this is the word of the Lord. And may his Holy Spirit move in our hearts to hear and to see his holy, inspired, and inerrant word for his glory and our joy. Amen. Brothers and sisters, as we've seen so far in Exodus, many truths, but one of the truths we've seen is that a name makes all the difference in the world. 
It's why your parents gave you a name when you were born. We need a name. We need to know how to be identified as, who to be yelled at, right, when you haven't been obedient, or the name when you sing happy birthday to you. You can't just say happy birthday, no name baby. It's happy birthday, Ben, or happy birthday, William. Meanings, names have significance and meaning. Some of y'all's names have meaning and significance from, from your families or maybe history or something like that. Names are important. And I'll give you an example why they're important. Imagine it's late at night and it's all quiet in the house and maybe you're sitting on the couch and it's all quiet and you're watching a show or you're watching a, a movie. Right, and you're just enjoying it. It's just been a great evening, whatever. And then all of a sudden, bang, 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 on your door, your front door. Now, if the banging on the door hasn't killed you already, hopefully you'll have enough wits about you not to open the door. So if this is the lesson that you learned today, do not open the door if someone comes randomly banging on your door in the middle of the night. So. You say to the person down the other, on the door and say, who are you? And why should I open the door? And if they say some random name, like our random name that we like, Joe Schmuckatelli, and you don't know Joe Schmuckatelli, and Joe doesn't have a very good reason for you to open the door at midnight or 1 a.m. or 11 p.m. or whatever it may be, you're not going to open the door for Joe. In fact, what you're probably going to end up doing is says, this is what the police were paid to do. So we're going to let them handle Joe. Now imagine the same story, same scenario happening. Bang at the door. And you ask the same question, who is it? How can I, why should I let you in and say it was me? And I heard them say, Dad, it's Eva. Am I going to be skeptical then? Maybe a little bit, because I'm going to be like, why are you outside at midnight? <laughs> or, or maybe they say, it's, it's the police, right? And of course, I'll get my little camera on my thing, and I'll be like, let me see your badge. Let me see your number. Take pictures of it, you know, whatever. And, and then I'll open the door. And why? Right? What's, what's the difference? It's because, because I know the person at the door. That name has some authority to me to open the door. Again, because names make all the difference. And we see the same thing in the Bible. Names mean something. Of course, they all have their little meanings and things like, like that. But when we say Moses or David or Isaiah or uh, Jeremiah or Paul, Peter, John, uh, James, and even better, when we say the name, name Jesus, we understand biblically that these names hold a particular weight about them. We understand them. They, they are recognizable to us. In history, in church history, is filled with big names too that have some weight as well, like Martin Luther and John Calvin and Thomas Watson and John Bunyan, J.C. Ryle, Charles Spurgeon, and, and, and so many others. How about Augustine? I didn't even have to enter the list. Augustine. And, and for the most part, these names are recognizable to us. We understand them, and they have meaning to us. We also understand that names have authority. Names have 
authority. For example, I do not tell you that, oh, just mention my name and they'll let you in. And why? Because my name commands no authority. It'll get you nowhere. In fact, it'll probably get you put on the back of the list just for trying. But some people can. Some people can show up at any restaurant at any point and just by their very presence and their name will get them in and get the best seat anywhere they want. In our morning, this morning's passage, we hear two very different responses to the name of the Lord. Chapter 4, at the end there, you hear the response of God's people to the name of the Lord. In chapter 5, you hear a totally different response to the name of the Lord. Same name, totally different response. Now, now certainly we can, we can put to it, right, the situations are different. Right? Slaves, they want to be freed, right? Slave owners don't want their slaves to be free. Israel has a long history of knowing the Lord, and Pharaoh doesn't. But we also know that there is a lot more going on in this passage than just ignorance on the part of Pharaoh or happenstance or coincidence of God. Moses was not ignorant of the Lord. He didn't know the name of the Lord, so he asked them, and the Lord showed him and told him. And isn't that sort of the same question that Pharaoh asks? Who is this? The posture is different. The attitude is different. And in this passage, I think we are seeing something theologically important Again, the sovereignty of God. And then that gives us perspective to understand what really goes on around us. So today, I have a couple lessons that I would like to share with you as the church. But before we get to those lessons, I want us to unpack the text because we have two very different scenes happening. So Moses is on his way with his family. And if the timeline holds, then, then, then Moses has just had this near-death experience of God trying to kill him. Not trying, killing God, going to kill him for being disobedient to the covenant. And, and as all of this has gone down, right, he has this near he's healed, everything's good. All this is going down. We hear in verse 27 that the Lord tells Aaron, now, we don't know the circumstances. We don't know how, what, and whatever it was. But here's Aaron, presumably back in Egypt. He is to come and meet Moses at the mountain. And in verse 27, very simply, he does. He goes. Right? He, he goes to, to, to Moses. Right? There's, there's no drama like the last two chapters we've had with, with, with Moses. No details, no drama. Just Aaron, come to Moses and meet him at the mountain of God at Mount Horeb, or a.k.a. Mount Sinai in us. And when they get together, I love this. They greet one another with a, with a kiss, right? That's the common greeting of the 
in the Old Testament or in the Bible, right? It's respectful, it's honoring, it's loving. But again, this is exactly what the Lord told Moses, that Aaron is going to come to you and he is going to be glad to see you. So what's more glad proving than a kiss? He kisses his brother. He's glad to, to see him. And when Moses had pleaded with the, the Lord for someone to, to send someone else, the Lord's anger was kindled against him and told him that he was coming to see him. In verse 28, Moses tells and shows Aaron everything. Like, this is what God has told me and showed me. Tells him everything, shows him everything, shows him all the signs. And why? Because Moses knows already, Aaron, this is the role you are going to play. And if Aaron's going to be this articulate spokesman that he is called to be, and that Moses needs him to be, because remember, Moses thinks and believes he's not, he can't speak, then Aaron needs to be up to speed with all that has happened and all that has been said. Because they are going to face some enormous challenges in front of them. We've read about one of those already. So surely at this point, you know, hearing what, how God has spoken and the signs that they're showing and the encouragement of Aaron actually coming to him, the gladness of heart, again, do we not see the glory of God in his good providence to his people? The care and love his people, especially now in their fellowship. It's kind of the, the same feeling we get when we face challenges that are before us, right? When we're feeling the challenges that are set before us, the heavy weights and burdens that we may be carrying. And whatever it may be, that we begin to understand and know that by God's grace and in his good providence, he has given us each other. He has given us the church, that we are not alone. And we still can be in fellowship with one another. And now... Verse 29, they get to Egypt. Not a lot of drama in the journey, right? They get to Egypt, and they're obedient. They do exactly what God told them to do. Go to the elders, and then go to the people, and tell them these things, and show them these things. And it's exactly what the Lord had told them to do. Aaron does the speaking, and it would seem that Moses is the one who performs the signs as, as the prophet. Now, to the big verse in verse 31. And this gives us that initial response and reaction that the elders had and that the people had to hearing God's word. Look at verse 31 again. It says, and the people believed. It's a big word. That's a big word in the Bible. Big word in the Bible. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction. So here's the language we've already been seeing from Exodus 1 and Exodus 2 and Exodus 3. These same things of God being with his people and being with them and understanding, knowing, and having concern for his people. Their response is they believed and they bowed their heads and worshipped. Right? So what is God doing? God's drawing his people bringing his people out of slavery to worship him. To worship him, right? So here's God's people. They joyfully believed what was announced to them, what was spoken to 
them. They joyfully believed the gospel of Exodus, as we might call it. They heard the message of the Lord. They heard about the concern of the Lord, right? So that word visiting, we've already seen it before. It means that God has been concerned about them. He knows he has been with them, with the sons of Israel in their affliction. And he has done what? He has now sent his deliverer, Moses, his savior, little s, savior, Moses, and his little r, redeemer, to come take them out of slavery. In this news, it moves the people of God to believe. And again, we know this theme throughout the Bible. This is a big word in the Bible. We can almost use them synonymously with the word faith. They believe that faith in the Lord, right? That the Lord not only was with them and seen their afflictions, but that God would do what? That he would keep his promise to save his people, all the way back to Genesis 15, to bring them out of slavery into the land filled with milk and honey. But yet not also to believe, but that belief led to worship. And we we cannot miss what we're seeing here. Right? We can't miss the, 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 the flow here. Right, The people hear the word of the Lord, they believe, and that leads to worship. Now, again, I've, I've said a few times now, believe and worship, they are, they are amazing words in the Bible. And they point to a, to a spiritual work of God and then its effect, the fruit of. The the next time that the word worship will be used in Exodus is in chapter 12, verse 27. And it'll, it'll be the people, again, bowing down and worshiping the Lord. And it's right after the death angel passes over them and delivers them from death because of the, the covering of the blood of the Passover lamb on the doorposts. The next time that the word believe is used in Exodus will will be all the way in chapter 14, verse 31. After Israel sees the the great power of the Lord used against Egypt, right? As they they cross over dry land through the Red Sea. What does it say? It says they believed in the Lord. Because you remember what was happening right before that? They were in fear. As God led us to this place for us to be killed. And then this miraculous deliverance. Worship and believe. And they are linked with redemption. They're linked with the necessity of faith. Now, we know certainly from here, verse 31, there's going to be challenges. We just read one in chapter 5. There's going to be challenges to them. Their faith is going to be tested. In fact, we can can pretty safely say that their faith will fail in a sense, or they will fail in believing. But here in God's word, we see their liberation has begun. 
Their liberation has begun. For the first time, it seems, right? It almost seems like it's the, it's the first time that they hear God's word, right? In particular, God's, God's word from his prophet, right? Because Moses is like the first prophet. Comes and speaks to him. Speaks to them. And they, he gives them God's word. And they see the signs with their own eyes that the Lord is with them. And that joy springs up, and we see, again, that belief, and we see that worship. And, I, and as I begin to think about that situation, how it must have been for them, right? They're, they're slaves. I mean, for centuries, there's no hope. Right? There's, it seems like there's no hope. When will we be delivered again? Delivered, another generation dies. When will we be delivered? Another generation dies, and so on and so forth for 400 years. And so when I thought about this joyous occasion when God's word comes to them and tells them that they are going to be delivered, I thought of, of this illustration. Over the past 10 years or so, we're seeing, you know, of course, technology and the advances of technology just, just wham, it's, it's going so far. Um, and including some medical advances. And one in particular is the, the medical advances for, for, for certain people who are deaf. You know, they can't hear. But for certain people who are deaf, for the first time, they can receive this treatment and this special implant in their, in, their, in their head and into their ear that will give them the ability to hear. That's amazing. And if you've ever seen any of those videos, there's these videos that are on the internet of people who, who hear for the very first time, and they are truly amazing and, and, and actually very emotional if you, if you think about the, the, the level of, of what's really happening, uh, of receiving something that we as a people who have these faculties can't, can't fathom in a lot of ways. And, and, and there was... There's some great videos of that, but one of them has to be the best when you see children. When you see children who receive their, their hearing for the first time. And I saw a, a video just the other day. And it was a toddler, no older than Calvin or Ezekiel. And, and he had the implant already. He had the, all the things that were ready to go for, 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 for him to start hearing. Um, and, and they were in the doctor's office or the therapy place, wherever it was, uh, with, with his parents. And, and the, the little boy was, was there. He's kind of in the center of the video, and he's there, and he's, he's totally oblivious to what's happening around him, right? Remember, he's deaf. He can't hear. And he's playing with the toy. He's being quiet, and, he's, and, and the doctor or the therapist is talking to, their, talking to the parents. This is what's going to happen. He says, I'm gonna, we're going to count down to three, and when I count to three, completely silent, and then I just want you to say his name. They're going to turn it on after the count of three. And so everything's quiet, and he's just playing. He's not hearing anything that the doctor's saying or anything like that, and they count down the three. Everything gets quiet. Three, two, one. And you hear a click, I think, of the, the button that they push. And the mother quietly says, Chris. And the little boy, I mean, it's amazing. The little boy, within less than a second, he, he, he's playing with the toy. He pops his head up. And he looks because he knows where his mom's at. And instantly, he jumps into her arms. He jumps into her arms, and you just see this great big hug. He's hearing his mother's voice for the very first time. I know you all seen those videos, so you can cry with me, because it's emotional as all get out, right? What a, what a miracle to hear. And, and I thought of that because of that emotional event of God's people who have been in slavery, right? 
to, to this horrible, wicked person in a, a nation for hundreds of years, and they hear God's word, and instantly they believe. And with joy, they, they worship God because they're hearing God's very word. Calling my son, it's time to come out. That's amazing. The joy of believing God's word. So, so here is that, that first group, right? That first group of people who hear and believe God's word. But then we get to chapter 5. Right, the chapter 5, the second part of our passage, in chapter 5, it goes in the exact opposite direction. Now, Moses and Aaron, they, they move from meeting with the people to now having an audience with Pharaoh. And they go to Pharaoh, in verse 1, they simply announce. And they say, thus says Yahweh. I don't know if they did it in that Charlton Heston voice or not. Or Aaron spoke it, actually. And they pronounced the Lord's words. These are my words. These are God's words. And for them to say that, thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, they know, everyone knows that they are speaking for God including Pharaoh. And what does Yahweh's words say? Let my people go. And for what reason? That they may come out and have a feast in the wilderness, to come out and worship. There's no, there's no trickery here, because it's God's intent for his people to worship him according to the ways that God has ordained for his people to worship. And so we hear verse 2, Pharaoh's response. Who is Yahweh that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord. And moreover, I will not let Israel go. Now, Pharaoh's response is not ignorance. It's not like where Moses was. Hey, who do I say sent me? What's your, what is your name? Pharaoh is not dumb. He knows who they are talking about, right? These people have been slaves in Egypt for 430 years. I think they understand who their God is and who they worship. But what I want you to see and understand that this serpent's voice and this serpent's response sounds very close to the serpent's challenge in the Garden of Eden. Knowledge is not the problem with Pharaoh. It's belief in recognizing the authority of Yahweh. Now, we've already recognized this, but, but Pharaoh is that, that evil seed of the serpent. And, and this evil is going to come up against the Lord. So here is this great epic battle that's about to take place, right? The line being drawn in the sand, the shots being set across the bow, this being set up of what's going to happen. And that the serpent bites, and the serpent continues to bite. But what we are going to see is how the Lord is crushing the head of the snake. And so when Pharaoh responds, verse 3, we hear Moses and Aaron 
respond back. And it, it almost seems like they're taking off, they're taking off guard by this. I think they're, they're kind of coming off of the joy and the exuberance of verse 31, and they kind of are expecting that Pharaoh's just going to let them go. And so they plead with, that with, with, with Pharaoh. In fact, it almost sounds a little backpedaling and, and, and uh, uh, you know, asking please and even giving a warning. Now, I don't think Moses and Aaron are wrong in what they're doing because I believe that they understand somewhat of how serious of a situation this is. I think Pharaoh is completely writing it off, right? He's like, who is that? Right? It'd be like, well, not even close, but Calvin coming to me and telling me to do something for him. Like, Dad, you need to go do that for me. No, son, <laughs> not happening. And, and here we see, uh, uh, we see Moses and, and Aaron, I think they completely understand what's about to happen. Maybe not the details, but they know something's happening. That, that Pharaoh, in a sense, in his responses, that he is literally signing his own death warrant in the, in the destruction of his nation. However, should Moses and Aaron be surprised by this response? The answer to that question is no. And the reason is, is because first God told Moses and Pharaoh that he wasn't going to listen. You're going to go say this to him, but, but they're not going to listen. He's only going to listen by the strong arm of the Lord being stretched out against Egypt. And second, we already know as well that we, the Lord has hardened Pharaoh's heart, that he would continue in dis disbelief so that God's glory would be manifested in Egypt as he destroys them, and that exposes Pharaoh as the pawn that he really is. But in verse 4, and through the rest of our passage, we hear about this, we hear this king who's just not happy about Moses and Aaron commanding him by this unknown God to him to let these people go. And so he imposes not only this, this really harsh physical consequence we'll talk about in just a, just a second, but in this, it's all about demoralization. Keep these people subjected to be subjected to him. And where he attacks Moses and Aaron is what? He attacks their words by, by twisting the intent of their words. He says, it's not about worship. It's not about going out worshiping the Lord. It's about your desire to go on vacation. It's about your desire to want to take time off and relax instead of work. So he commands this whole thing that all the straw would be taken away from the Israelites, the straw that they were using to make the bricks to build the cities for the Pharaoh. And if they were going to need straw, which they would to make bricks, they would have to go find it on their own, on their own time, which is really not theirs in the first place. Now, interesting side note, the straw was not mixed into the mud to make the bricks stronger. Bricks are strong on their own, straw is not strong at all. But what the straw was used for was, was in the drying process, because how did they dry the bricks? They put them in the desert sun. And they would use the straw to, to lay out in it and kind of poke it in a little bit so that the, when the bricks were drying, 
almost, they would almost dry from the inside out and then make them uh, dry evenly. And if they didn't dry evenly, you would have a brittle, brittle brick. You would have a substandard brick. So here they're in this place where now they're forced to go find straw. And the chances of when they find straw, it's going to be substandard straw to make substandard bricks. And this is a very bad situation because their quota was still the same. You heard Pharaoh say that. So here from this edict, their work has tripled for the same product to make the, to have the same production. In verse 9, I think sums it all up for us. It says, let heavier work be laid upon the men that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. He says, I'm going to give you more work than you can handle. And I'm going to prove to you that their words, Yahweh's words, are lies and mine are not. Because when I make a threat, I keep it. The serpent sounds just like the serpent, doesn't he? God's word is a lie. That's the lie of the serpent. Now, how are we to understand this passage? Clearly, there's basic implications and applications we can make to the Christian life of faith, belief, worship, and affliction and consequences that Christians face in a fallen world. And some of those we will explore, but, but I have summed them up into four lessons for us having to do with belief and affliction. And again, if we take our passage, we split it into as we already had, again, you see that, that diametric, uh, uh, diametrically, this categorical differences between the response of God's people who joyfully believe God's word and worship him and the stark unbelief of Pharaoh. And so that brings us to our first lesson, and that is this. First, faith comes down to believing God's word. Faith comes down to believing God's word. And so what does the prophet bring to God's people in Egypt? He brought him them the word of God. And they spoke it and they confirmed it by the, by the signs. And the very important distinction here is that they are described as the people of God, as Israel, as God's firstborn son. A very important distinction that God's word is making for us. And therefore, they affirmed the word spoken. They heard God's word, meaning it was sufficient and effective to draw in their belief, and that led them to worship. But Pharaoh, the representative of, of Egypt, a seed of the, of the serpent, not God's people, right? So we make that clear distinction that they are not of God's people. He flatly rejects God's word. And they did not believe God's truth. In fact, we hear Pharaoh doing what? He's working against God's word. He's not just saying, oh, I don't believe it, and walks away. No, he pushes against it so that to try to crush God's word with his own means that he can do. Now, when we go to the New Testament, Jesus tells us what's going on here. Jesus shows us exactly what's going on here because there were some unbelieving Jews who asked him, and they asked Jesus to plainly tell him Tell us if you're, if you're the Christ. Just say it. I am the Christ. 
And Jesus says this, right, in John chapter 10. He says, I told you, and you do not believe me. Right, so I've already said it, and you don't believe me. He says, the works that I do in my Father's name, the signs, the signs that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness about me of who I am. But you do not believe me. And why? Here it is. Because you are not among my sheep. You're not among my sheep. Well, what did the sheep do? If you are among his sheep, what do they do? My sheep hear my voice. My sheep hear my word. And he says, and I know them. Meaning, oh, that's my sheep. Yep, I know that's my sheep. And they follow me. He says, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. And Jesus explains it like, like this, right? Only his sheep know his voice. The ones that he knows already, his people, they are the ones that believe and follow. And Paul tells it like this in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, in verse 14, he says, the natural person, unbeliever, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They do not believe, for they are folly to him. Who is this Yahweh that I should believe? Right? Folly. So we're, we're, we're not to be surprised by this. When people hear of the resurrection and the virgin birth and the, the, the splitting of the Red Sea, and we say, yep, we believe it. Or we believe in the creation accounts. We're not to be surprised when people say that's foolishness. And here's what Paul says. He says he is unable to understand them. Why? Because these things are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of of Christ. So we know in the, the background of Exodus that, that God is sovereignly at work, right? We heard God is hardening Pharaoh's heart. He's sovereignly at work. And then as we hear from, from Jesus and Paul, God's word, we are seeing it, seeing the same sovereign work of God. That without the work, as we prayed this morning, our brother prayed this morning, that without the work of the Holy Spirit through the preaching of God's word, the word of God, then no man can believe. Belief and faith then is what? Is the work of the Lord. So faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of Christ. Romans 10, 17. Lesson two. God's people are called to worship and serve the Lord. That's an obvious one, right? Now, again, we see the stark differences between these first two passages. God's people respond in belief and worship, but what does Pharaoh demand? Right? God's people, are, they respond in belief and worship, but what does Pharaoh demand? Pharaoh demands work. Pharaoh demands labor, more labor. And so in verse 4, in verse 5, 7, 8, and 9, in all of those passages, 
what it is that we hear Pharaoh is saying is work, 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 more work. And how about some more heavier work? Now, here's what's interesting. Suppose the supposed God of Egypt is commanding God's people to work. No rest, no rest for the weary, but what does God give his people? God gives his people rest. Yes, the, Yahweh is calling his people to come serve him and, and worship him in the wilderness, but this work is light and joyful. Now, what's interesting, again, as well, is that this word used for worship has the same root in that, that word work and serve and slave. The same root occurs there from verse 9 and verse 6. But both God and, e and Pharaoh think Israel should work and serve them. But look at Pharaoh's call to, and demand to work, 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 and harder, harder, harder for me, for me, for me. So the question is, is who will you serve? Who, who are you going to serve? And, and they already know from worshiping the Lord and service to the Lord what it means. And they definitely know what service and work to Pharaoh means. And we must remember that this is the Lord our God. And that later in Exodus chapter 20, he is going to give them the fourth commandment that after they are delivered, he's going to give them the fourth commandment of a day of rest. Work in itself is not bad. Work is good. We're called to work. We're, we're made to work. We're made to cultivate and to subdue. But even higher than that is to be obedient to the Lord our God. And he, by his mercy, he gives his people this day of rest. So can you imagine the thought of coming out of slavery and here's their God said, here's a day of rest. I don't know, what does that work out to be every year? Like seven weeks? Seven weeks of rest every year? You've never had a day of rest in your life. How about seven weeks of rest every year for you? And doesn't that sound like something glorious in the gospel? same God who gave Israel rest and joy is the same God who has said, come to me, all you labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Now, brothers and sisters, isn't this the same battle that we face almost daily? Will we rest in Christ, or will we attempt futilely to earn our own righteousness? And like the Pharaoh's edict, this is the battle that so many are caught up in. This is the standard of righteousness in the world around us, that you must conform to their labors and to their work in order to be saved. One of those that I, I heard this week was, let your good outweigh the bad. That's endless work. That's that's. The edict of the serpent. That's living life on a treadmill. Getting exhausted, but going nowhere. God has commanded his people to worship and serve him and find rest in him. 
Number three, third lesson is, is that God's people need to understand that there, are, there still can be consequences to obedience in a fallen world. So Aaron and Moses are received well by God. The word is accepted. The worship, all is well. Everyone's excited. Yay, we're going to be delivered. And so Moses boldly goes to Pharaoh, Moses, and Aaron, and they declare the word of the Lord. Let my people go. And what happens? The opposite. The opposite of freedom happens. They get, they get more bondage. They get more oppressions. Things got worse. There were consequences to their obedience. Doesn't this remind us of some things that we've learned in the New Testament? Particularly as we've been through 1 Peter. It says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trials when they come upon you to test you. As though something strange is happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Suffering, brothers and sisters, has sovereign purposes. And even in our obedience, we may face consequences or repercussions of that obedience in a fallen world. Pharaoh's response is in direct response to the obedience of Israel. But not only that do we understand about our sufferings, but also in our sufferings we can rejoice. We studied this on Thursday night in men's group. In Romans chapter 5, verse 3, it says not only that, after talking about the gospel, by the way, so we're already rejoicing in the good news of the gospel. We have been set free, not by our works, but by the work of Christ and Christ's work alone through faith alone. And he says this, not only that, you can be even weirder. You can rejoice in your suffering. And why? Because we know that sufferings produce endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that's been given to us. What is often thought to be used for evil, right? Pharaoh bringing this evil upon these people. His, his consequences. Oh yeah, I'm going to show them. I'm going to show them that I'm God. Not this one who comes before me with this staff to tell me that another God is speaking. These things that are used for evil. Here we see that the Lord is using them for our good and for his glory, for our joy. And Paul says for our endurance. So that you would be stronger. You would be able to last longer. You would be able to endure. It's for our character. For our character. What does that mean? That means our virtues, our morals, our ethics, the way that we look are now being conformed even more to Christ. From the inward to the outward. We are looking, we are thinking, and we are doing the image of Christ before the world, our character. And what does that produce? It produces hope. And what is this hope? It is a living hope. 
And this hope isn't shameful. Sure, the consequences are going to be hard from the world, from this evil Pharaoh. But your hope is being made more manifest to you. God's love is becoming even more real in your hearts by the Holy Spirit. And so as God people, we see the things around us, in the world around us, and we may face consequences for our obedience to God's word. And our saying should be this, no straw, no worries, praise the Lord, let us rejoice. Memorize that, no straw. And we know what that means now. No worries. Praise the Lord, let us rejoice. And the fourth and last lesson is this, God will keep his promises. And here's where we have to hope, brothers and sisters, because it would seem, again, if, if, if the Bible just kind of stopped there at verse 9, it would just kind of leave us in a lot of trouble, wouldn't it? It would leave God's people in a lot of uh, trouble. But as we started, consequences, evil kings cannot stop the sovereign purposes of the Lord our God. He will deliver his people. And that same truth is the same as in our own time. He will keep his promises. He has kept his promises. And he will, in his time, he will powerfully deliver his people by the might of his outstretched arm. And how do we know this? Because we know it because of the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Evil, as, as Pharaoh was, evil is just pawns in the hands of a sovereign God. And that gives us hope. And just like we read in Romans 5, character produces hope. And hope does not put you to shame. Because God has been poured out over our hearts. His promise is still true for us. That in Christ he will soon deliver us from this life to eternal life. Brothers and sisters, I think the overall lesson for us this morning is faith. I think believe it's faith. And the question we've asked, I think, several times, or I've asked you several times, is can God's word be trusted? And what we have seen over and over again is that it is true and that it is powerful. And so, brothers and sisters, let us believe. Let us have faith. Let us worship and rejoice for the promise, brothers and sisters, that we have. The promise that we have is far greater because our deliverer and Savior is not Moses, but our deliverer is the Son of God. He is Jesus Christ. And who by his perfect atoning sacrifice on the cross has delivered his people from death to life. From slavery and bondage to sin to freedom. From darkness to light. From blindness to sight. From despair 
to hope, from isolation to adoption, from sin to the righteousness of Christ, from destitution to the inheritance of the riches and wealth of heaven. We do not disregard the unbeliever. And let's not, let us not think and let this temptation never come into our minds that it's us versus them. Because so were, once, so were we once enemies. But because of his grace, we have this living hope. That hope to live out before the world not as adversaries to them, but as Paul says, as ambassadors to the gospel and to the kingdom of God. That we come with gloriously good news for their rest and for their joy and to the worship and praise of God Almighty and no longer to the work and labor to the evil that is around us today. And all God's people say,